This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Prizes by Janet Frame. You cheated in history. You couldn't learn poetry by heart. You never had your name in the paper. First in geometry, French, English, history. The story was chosen by Miranda July, whose fiction and essays have been appearing in The New Yorker since 2006. July is also a multimedia artist and a filmmaker. Her most recent movie, The Future, came out in 2011. And her first novel, The First Bad Man, will be published in 2015. She joins us from a recording studio in Los Angeles. Hi, Miranda. Hi. Now, Prizes was published in the magazine in 1962 when Janet Frame was 38 and you did not exist. So (laughs) I'm wondering how you first came across Frame's work and what was the first piece of hers that you read? Well, like so many people, it was Jane Campion's movie An Angel at My Table about Janet Frame that led me to her work. And I loved that movie. It was so important to me. And then I guess I read Owls Do Cry, Faces in the Water. Mm -hmm. I know I've had both those books for a long time. They're a little impenetrable. And I know I really (laughs) like the titles. (laughs) And I often just sort of reread the titles. Um, But I, (laughs) I really love also the story of her life. And a lot of her work is very directly autobiographical whether or not it's her autobiography. What is it in the story of her life that speaks to you? It's funny. For years, I was telling my husband, you have to watch this movie. This movie was so formative for me. And finally, we watched it together not that long ago. And he said, oh, you think this is your story. Like, this this is how high the stakes of your internal creative struggle are, that you think you went through kind of hell and back to be able to tell your, you know, tale, to be able to do your work. And that's why you identify with it so much. In truth, I had a really easy time compared to Janet Frame. I was not... You were not put in in an insane asylum. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it is true, and this is probably true for many artists, that the stakes have to be at that pitch in order to really keep doing it against whatever odds there are. And so I think, you know, when I first saw that movie as a teenager, her story and the story of becoming a writer felt like my story. (laughs) I didn't really see any difference um, on an emotional level. Janet Frame has a as you said, she, her books can be quite dense. She has a particular voice. Do you think that there's anything we should uh, tell listeners before they hear the story or that they should listen out for? I just think that you'll be listening along and it'll be kind of like, where is this going? And then not in the usual places, there'll suddenly be something very true that will kind of sneak up out of nowhere and have nothing really to do with the usual arc of a story. <laughs> yeah. Um, so listen out for those. So we'll talk a bit more after the story. And now here's Miranda July reading Prizes by Janet Frame. Life is hell, but at least there are prizes. Or so one thought. One knew of the pit ahead, of the grown-ups lying there, rewarded, arranged, and faded, who were so long ago bright as poppies. 
One learned to take one's own deserved place on the edge, ready to leap, not to hang back in a status-free huddle where bodies were warm together and the future darkness seemed less frightening. Therefore, one learned to win prizes, to be surrounded in sleep by a dream of ordinal numbers, to stand in best clothes upon platforms in order to receive medals threaded upon black and gold ribbons, books bounding calf, scrolled certificates. One's face became, from habit, incandescent with achievement. I had my share of prizes and of resentment when nobody recognized my efforts. For instance, year after year, when the New Zealand Agricultural and Pastoral Society held its show in the Anui Drill Hall, I made a buttonhole of a rose and a sprig of maidenhair fern tied together with raffia, which I entered for the flower display, Gentleman's Buttonhole. It was never displayed, and it never won a prize. One morning, a militant woman in a white coat made a speech to the whole school from the front steps before Bertie Dowling played the kettle drum for us to march inside. And in her speech, the woman accused too many people of entering for the buttonhole section and advised us not to try to make buttonholes as they were an art beyond our years that even grown-ups found difficult to master. It has never been explained, the woman said, why so many children enter buttonholes in the flower show. Bertie Dowling had the sticks raised, ready to play the drum. He was very clever at it. He was a small, sunburned, wiry boy with long feet like a rabbit. I felt antagonistic toward the woman visitor. Who was she to order me not to make buttonholes for the flower show? I persisted, as I say, year after year. Yet always, once I had surrendered my exhibit, neat in its little box caged from the jewelers, I never heard of it again. I had so much determination and so little wisdom that I never grasped the futility of my struggle, although I realized that when talents were being devised and distributed, my name was not included in the short list of those blessed with the power to make gentlemen's buttonholes that would reach the display table at the flower show in the drill hall and win first, second, or third prize. I won six and fourpence for handwriting. At that time, I was in love with my parents, therefore I decided to buy my mother a best china cup, saucer, and plate with the entire six and fourpence, even though at that time I also had a fondness for saunt chocolate bars, jelly beans, and chocolate fish whose insides were a splurge of pink rubbery substance with tiny air holes in it. When I gave my mother the best china, cup, saucer, and plate, she said, you shouldn't have, and wrapping the sack carefully in tissue paper, she placed it in the sideboard cupboard with the other dishes that we never used, not even for the banquet to see the New Year in, like the gravy boat, the tiny cream jug with the picture of a Dutch girl, the vegetable dishes with the picture of a rooster crowing on each one. Then my mother locked the door. I never saw her using the cup, saucer, and plate. It was best china, too, the man in Peaks told me. My mother always said she was keeping the set for when she could really use it, drinking out of the cup, resting a silver spoon in the saucer, tasting, with a cake fork, a slice of marble cake upon the plate. Although I could not discern the difference between using something and really using it, there was evidently a distinction so important that when my mother died, she still had not been able to use really to use, my six-and-four-penny gift to her. My next prize was for a poem that revealed both my lack of scientific knowledge and my touching disbelief in change by concluding with the lines, 
Until the sky falls from above, these things of nature I shall love. Uncle Ted, of my favorite wireless station in Christchurch, read my poem over the air, between a recording of the Nutcracker, Waltz of the Flowers, and the fifth episode of David and Dawn in Fairyland, and two days later I received through the post an order for ten shillings, with part of which I bought for myself an unsatisfactory diary and a John Bull printing set which I used printing my name in rude rhymes and insults to the rest of the family until the ink dried on the navy blue pad. The remainder of the ten shillings I saved in a post office bank which could not be opened unless it was taken to the post office. I broke into it with a kitchen knife when my bathing cap perished and the weather was warm enough for swimming. Prizes. They arrived unexpectedly, or I waited greedily for them at the end of every school year when I received one or two, sometimes three books with the school motto, Pleasure from Work, inscribed on the flyleaf beneath the cramped, detailed writing of the form mistress setting out the reasons for my prize. Reasons were necessary, for no school had yet learned to distribute prizes at random, first come, first served, in the manner that my mother had adopted, in exasperation when she was pestered for raisins, dates, or the last of the chocolate biscuits. I collected so many books, Treasure Island, Silas Marner, Emma, poems of Longfellow with a heart-throbbing picture of Hiawatha bearing Minnehaha across the river. Over wide and rushing rivers, in his arms he bore the maiden. India, with illustrations colored as if with cochineal, boys and girls who became famous, and, during the war, when books were scarce, a musty old rained-on and stained volume of poems about blossoms, barns, and wine presses, printed in tall, dark type where snakes lurked in every capital letter. Prizes. Some did not get prizes. Dottie Baker, with the greasy hair, never got a prize. Maud Gray, who found it hard to read even simple sentences aloud, never got a prize. Maud Gray, she was the stodgiest girl in the class. All the teachers made fun of her, and most of the pupils, including myself, followed their example. Her eyes were brittle and brown like cracked acorn shells. Her face was pale and blotched like milk on the turn. Years later, I was visiting Anyui. I was walking desolately in the rain along the main street, wearing my dirty old gabardine and my dowdy clothes and feeling 15 instead of 25, when, just beyond the bed of poppies in the center of the street, I saw two beautiful women wheeling prams, and their proud gait was so noticeable I tried to recall when and where I had seen before that superior parading of the victorious. And then I realized that I had walked onto the platform in the same way, year after year, to receive my prizes. Dottie Baker, Maud Gray. As they passed with their cocooned, quilted, embroidered treasure, I could not even assert my superiority by whispering, You cheated in history. You couldn't learn poetry by heart. You never had your name in the paper. First in geometry, French, English, history. They smiled at me, and I smiled at them. We shared the pit, each in her place. The rain poured upon the bed of crushed poppies between us. Yet the delicacy and distance of the two women were unmistakable. I grudged their proud cloaks as they trooped, clients of love, on their specially reserved side of the world. But prizes. They never won prizes. 
My only retaliation was prizes, listing them, remembering. I wrote to a children's newspaper, sending poems that were awarded ten or five or three marks. When I had earned one hundred marks, I received the usual prize of two guineas. For one guinea, my father bought me a tennis racket, as he said, on the cheap. But when he showed it to me, I was alarmed to discover that the strings were black instead of white, and the name was unfamiliar, Double Duke. I was the loneliest person in the world with my black-stringed Double Duke. Why had my father not realized that every other girl at school possessed a white-stringed vantage? Ah, it was sad enough to have an old wireless at home with a name no one had heard of and with tubes so few in number compared with the tubes in other sets. The conversations in class went, Have you got a wireless at home? How many tubes? The prestige of owning things mattered so much, and to have a tennis racket with a strange name and grotesque strings was punishment indeed. I was so ashamed of my tennis racket that I seldom used it. With my other guinea from the newspaper, I had the unexpected fortune to be chosen by Hesse Sutton, a woman up the road, as her pupil for music lessons, the piano, at a reduced rate, and every Tuesday and Friday after school I claimed an hour of Hesse Sutton's time in the front room of the house where she lived with her mother and a white parrot whose perpetual screaming inspired complaining letters to the evening paper. The front room was large and carpeted, with sparkling bubble-shaped windows. The piano made wonderfully clean sounds as the keys sank into and sprang from their green bedding. The sounds filled me with a polished sense of opulence and cleanliness, and each note emerged bravely and milkily alone and poured into me up to my neck. I swallowed. I liked Hussie Sutton's piano. We had none at home. At my aunt's house, where I went to practice once a week, there was an old piano with soapy yellow keys that stuck halfway, and the lower or upper half of each sound had been weathered down so that each note came forth deprived, diseased, with an invalid petulance and stricture. But you must not bite your nails, Hesse Sutton warned me. You will never be able to play the piano if you bite your nails. That was my first intimation that Hesse Sutton was a spy. I clenched my fists, hiding my fingernails. At school, I said, I learn music, do you? Dolly Baker, Maud Gray, and others learned music, but mostly they were like uncooked pastry at it. They suffered a dearth of warmth, expansion, gold finish. On the cold June days when the music festival was held, we sat miserably in the hall, our coats over our knees, listening to a march militaire being played by schoolgirl dentists and carpenters. My first piece was named Puck. I went down to the stationers to buy it on tick, and the ginger-haired boy served me, and his face had a rust-colored blush, like a dock leaf in autumn, because he had to go to the small room at the back of the shop and ask his parents if it would be all right to serve me, as our bill had not been paid. On my way home with Puck, I met Hesse Sutton and smiled at her, shyly and excitedly. But when she glanced at the parcel under my arm and the music half-wrapped and gave an understanding smile, my face clouded in a fierce frown. How dare she see me and divine my excitement? How dare she? How I hated her! That afternoon when I went for my lesson, she heightened my sense of shame. I saw you, she pounced as soon as I entered the room. I saw you, 
she said, like a detective giving evidence, coming home with your new piece of music. I guessed how excited you were. I wasn't caring at all, I said sullenly. Yes, you were, as he Sutton insisted. I saw it in your face. I knew. I did not understand why she should appear so triumphant, as if by seizing on a momentary aspect of my behavior she had uncovered a life of deceit in me. Why she honked with triumph like the soldier who brought back the golden horn from the underworld as proof of the secret activities of the twelve dancing princesses. I did not realize that people's actions are mysteries that are so seldom solved. I knew, I knew, Hesse Sutton kept saying as I sat down to try out Puck. From that day I no longer enjoyed my music lessons. I was wary of being spied upon. People were saying, observing me closely, She's filling out. She's growing tall. Look at her hair. Isn't that Grace's chin she's got? And there's no doubting where her smile comes from. You see how derivative I was made out to be? Nothing belonged to me, not even my body. And now, with Hesse Sutton and her spying ways, I could not call my feelings my own. Why did people have so much need to stake their claim in other people? Were they scared of the bailiffs arriving in their own house? I stopped learning music. I was in despair. I could no longer use prizes as a fortress. In spite of my book's bounding calf, my scrolled certificates, the prize essay on the visit to the flour mill, and my marks of merit in the children's newspaper, I was being invaded by people who wanted their prizes from me. And now I lie in the pit, finally arranged, faded, robbed of all prizes, while still under every human sky the crows wheel and swoop, dividing, dividing the spoils of the dead. That was Prizes by Janet Frame, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1962 and is collected in Prizes, the selected short stories of Janet Frame, published by CounterPoint. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Miranda, what is the pit that comes up a couple of times in this story, that that pit in the first paragraph where those prize winners are kind of lying, arranged, and faded like corpses? Is it death? I was hoping you would know. <laughs> I, I was thinking, yeah, either. I mean, at, at first it it seems to be like the the state of being an adult, arranged and faded, or you're dead. I mean, or she's literally describing... A graveyard. Um, That's the pit. But I I tend to think, yeah, the pit is kind of the whole rest of life 
after yeah. after you're no longer bright as a poppy. She talks about, you know, these sort of corpses kind of lying right. there all cubbyholed and faded and made irrelevant by their prizes. But then in the next paragraph, she says, we're supposed to stand on the edge of that pit, you know, mm-hmm. and ready to leap. And we can't just hang back in this comforting huddle of, of unremarkableness. I mean, that is the urge to make anything in a way to try, yeah. you know, yeah. to try and risk to fail. And the, I mean, in some sense, though she's talking about these very specific prizes, I feel like she's also talking about the prize of having gotten to be a writer and how that isn't exactly equal to the prize of of being one of Love's clients. Yeah, that's one of the crucial moments of the story when she sees those two girls who were useless in school walking joyfully down the street with their prizes, which are these babies. And she realizes that she didn't actually win the prize of love. Right. But it's difficult to know how much she values either side of the equation. I mean, she certainly has some bitterness on seeing how happy they are. Yeah. And she is still invested in her prizes. That's her kind of consolation. I mean, I I kind of picture that the seed for this story was seeing those girls, those women who she used to know, and and genuinely parsing through what she had won and, and ways that she had been better. And maybe she didn't write this right then, but that moment yeah. had stayed with her and kind of kept defining those two kinds of lives you could live. Right. It's that moment of realizing that the hierarchy you had so clearly in your mind in school doesn't actually play out that way in the rest of life. Yeah. No. Each prize that that this girl wins is somehow spoiled. You know, her mother never uses that cup and saucer. And her second prize, she uses to buy an unsatisfactory diary. She never tells us why it's unsatisfactory. (laughs) But you can picture. (laughs) It's just not good enough. How cheap it is. And then she gets this printing set and she uses it to print insults about her family. (laughs) And then her father gets her the wrong tennis racket and she sours on her music lessons. I mean, all of these prizes seem to come with some sort of sense of shame or what do you think is at the root of that? Well, it is very hard to win prizes to know what to do (laughs) with them. I mean, I feel like all the joy is in wanting them and in getting them, but then the having them isn't anything. It's kind of worse because it's all the energy is gone and it's just this sort of cheap object. With the wrong colored strings. Yeah, Well, the underlying irony of the story is the fact that, you know, when she was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia and in the mental hospital and about to have a lobotomy forced on her, she was let off from that lobotomy by the fact that her first book won a prize. I know. Um, Yeah. And I I feel that that prize hovering somewhere behind the story, though she doesn't go there. Right. You just assume it's all going to lead up to that somehow. And yeah, yeah, a prize saved her life, like her, her, her mind, brain, her least. brain. Yeah. That's so specifically true for her and not for anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, it can't yeah, help. Very but... few people are saved from lobotomies by, by literary prizes. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it should happen more often. <laughs> There's another real twist in this story. And that's about, you know, halfway through when that moment when Hesse Sutton catches her looking excited about her sheet music. Mm-hmm. And it, somehow everything turns around, and Hesse Sutton's having caught her in this moment of emotion, 
it turns into a prize for Hesse Sutton. You know, she, she describes it as the golden horn brought back from the underworld. What is going on with that? Uh, I know. That part is very resonant to me, but I can't. It's hard to exactly unwind it. I mean, I know I can imagine how private her joy felt and how any joy can feel. And I don't think Hesse Sutton was really making fun of her joy, but it was private. And I mean, I know she was painfully self-conscious and I guess it was an invasion and, and sort of on the brink of growing up or womanhood, maybe teenage years, that it felt incredibly exposing. Those years when you don't want to be looked at. But it's it's really interesting to me what she does with it. The way that Hesse Sutton is so delighted to have witnessed this moment of vulnerability. And then she says something about it's, you know, I didn't realize how rare it was to be able to, to know somebody else's emotion. And how just that is a prize for Hesse Sutton. It becomes, it becomes less mean somehow when she puts it that way. Right, that's true. And it's just the ability to read somebody else. Right. You know, who's normally unreadable, I suppose. Right. And I I think, though she clearly did not belong in a, a lunatic asylum, she had such a hard time connecting with people and, yeah, and reading other people. And I find that very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> we probably all do. Just to come back to that pit, which we do at the very end of the story, now she's she's in that pit. And in the beginning, this is where prize winners went. Even if it was a graveyard, it was maybe a kind of pantheon. But now she's in that pit, and these crows are flying around and looking for the spoils of the dead, and she doesn't have her prizes anymore. You talked about how this story doesn't go in the directions you expect it to go in, and that wasn't what I was expecting, but it seems like a final judgment that undoes so much of what came before. Yeah, and you wonder, like the line before that, I was being invaded by people who wanted their prizes from me. If there wasn't a lot of that feeling in her life, you know, after her childhood as she became a writer, and then everything that she achieved in moments like seeing her classmates with their babies, whatever. It just amounts to nothing. She might as well be dead. I wonder if it's reading too much into it, but to think of those crows as the sort of doctors pronouncing her this or that and, and trying to peck away at her, mm. at her personality. Yeah. What made her her. Yeah, she's such an odd combination of so strong and really for any time, but you know, even more so f for her time. And yet, when you're reading the story of her life, it's amazing how many times she willingly goes back to the insane asylum and, and just kind of checks herself in and lets them do what they want with her because she doesn't feel capable in the world. And yet, she's got this voice, and the voice is supposed to save you from that, you know, yeah, having a voice. Yeah. And I think... Every writer and artist, you know, so fears losing their brain somehow, um, yeah. injuring their brain. And, and so that she kind of walked that line for so many years, semi-willingly. And, and, you know, to me, that's has so much to do with being a woman. That path just wouldn't have 
happened for a male writer. I mean, it was really like the prize. It's so sad that the prize saved her. You know, the prize is sort of, in my mind, kind of like men saying, like, she does have a mind. <laughs> we decide it's official. It's all right. Um, she's not She's not sick. She's just a writer. Yeah. She can just yeah. be allowed to be smart and be who she is and be unique. Yeah. Well, on a lighter note, I mean, Janet Frame is a different era from you, and she's from small-town New Zealand. But there was something on reading this story that did make me think of, of your work. It's it's the way that, that we flow through the narrative. It's not following plot, but following the disconnected thoughts of the narrator. And that's often the way that you write. It's kind of an internal monologue, and the, the transitions aren't always clear, because when we think transitions aren't always clear... Do you think that Janet Frame's style has, has had an influence on you as a writer? The way I see it most is her writing honestly from a kind of uncertain point of view, from a place of doubt. That part I, I relate to and leads to kind of what you're talking about, like following a feeling rather than a structure. And right. yeah, she's she's certainly a writer who makes more room for that. When you read her work, you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's what matters most. And it doesn't have to be a, a feeling of passion or anything really flashy. It can be, you know, a winding feeling of unease. Yeah, the, the, just the movement of a voice rather than the movement of a, of a plot. Mm-hmm. And also, she's very funny, um, right. which is, you know, we've talked about the gruesomeness of this story, but there are lines in there that that make me laugh every time I look at them. It's a very odd combination. Yeah, that elements. she mentions her mom's death that she still hadn't used. She still hadn't <laughs> been able to and... really use that cup yeah. and saucer. <laughs> you know? And that's actually, yeah, she handles death like that always. I mean, she had two siblings die, drown, and it's she always in her work kind of points out little details like that kind of surrounding the death to get at the feeling. Yeah, it's not avoidance. It's not a sort of way to distract yourself. She's just, these are the things that are funny about death. Yeah. funny about being unhappy or anything else. Yeah, and you can imagine actually feeling a loss more when you look at the six and four penny cup and saucer that she never used than if you're trying to think directly that my mother is gone, you know, like that's when you feel it. And it might come with a laugh. Well, thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you so much, Deborah. Miranda July's novel, The First Bad Man, comes out next year. Her story, Roy Spivey, which appeared in the anthology The Book of Other People, can be heard on a previous episode of this podcast, read by David Sedaris. If I were a more self-assured person, I would not have volunteered to give up my seat on an overcrowded flight, would not have been upgraded to first class, would not have been seated beside him. This was my reward for being a pushover. This episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast is brought to you by Little Brown and Company, publishers of Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls by David Sedaris. Deeply satisfying, says David Carr at the New York Times. And the Los Angeles Times raves, yes, David Sedaris really is that good. And based on this latest collection, he's only getting better. Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, the number one New York Times bestseller, is now in paperback. Start reading at littlebrown.com. 
You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes Store, where you can download more than 80 previous episodes. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>